A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, I have with me Cara uh, Richardson-Whiteley. Kara is uh, the author of Gorge, My Journey Up Kilimanjaro at 300 Pounds. She is, I, I think I would describe you as kind of a motivational speaker. You know, you do some coaching, you, you, you advise to, um, to organizations. Um, there's a lot going on in your life, and I think it's really, really interesting. Welcome, Kara. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, we always like to start kind of with a little bit of the life story, right? And, and your life story is your story in this particular case. And it's, I think it's also an interesting one. Um, you know, let's, let's share with, with the audience, you know, how do, how do you become an expert and a coach? And I'll let you describe a little bit more about the specifics of, of, of what you do, not steal any of the thunder. But, uh, but where, where did it all start for you? Let's start at the beginning. Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. Well, where I ended is I'm an extended sizes or plus size advisor for corporations. And how that all began is that um, I'm somebody who for all of my life has lived in a larger body, has been fat, however you want to call it, right? Um, I first started struggling with my weight. At least the first memory that I have is when I was nine years old and um, my parents were on the verge of divorce and I remember hiding in the pantry and binging. Um, the sounds of the chewing would drown out my parents screaming. And this developed a pattern for me where I would eat to take away the sting of things that were not comfortable. And it developed a pattern where I was um, binging as a way of coping. It got worse when I was sexually assaulted when I was 12. Um, You know, I was a latchkey kid. A lot of things happened after my parents' divorce where this is the way that I lived. And what I learned over time was that you know, and now in my adulthood, and I've done a lot of work in my wellness and my recovery um, from binge eating disorder, is that that pattern of behavior not just pushed away the bad things, but it pushed away the good. And also, I didn't develop a lot of coping mechanisms for the stress of life. And so, in my adult life, I have had to reframe and rechart my journey that wasn't so reliant on comfort, wasn't so reliant on on you know, pushing away uncomfortable things. And so I think the pre- the moment that really turned things around for me, or at least one of those moments, I mean, everybody, everyone, everyone wants that Oprah aha moment where it all changes right. and everything right. is right. better. Not normal. That does, that's not the way the world works. But one moment that shines bright in my memory of, of, changing was that I got one of those adventure travel catalogs in the mail, the kind with glossy pictures of Machu Picchu and Kilimanjaro in the Alps. You get those, right? Yeah. Yeah. We get those too. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I remembered holding it in my hands and seeing the photos and, you know, you know, and I know that like the photos are never as amazing as the real thing. And I said to myself, I'm going to do that when I lose weight. And I realized that I said that about everything. Everything was followed by that clause. Like I'm going to buy myself a whole new wardrobe when I lose weight. I'm going to go to the doctors when I lose weight. And I can't tell you how many people I've met around the country in my speaking engagements who have said that very same thing. And I realized that 
all of my worth, all of my joy was based on this, this ideal that I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. I couldn't be the person I wanted to be simply because of the size of my body. And I thought, well, that's, that's rubbish, right? I, I want to be in these pictures. I want to have some forward momentum. And so I headed to the, the, you know, outdoor store. And at the time, you know, this is, you know, more than 10 years ago, extended sizes weren't as they are now. No, I couldn't, no, even, I mean, even the socks were too tight. Right. Um, I, the only thing that I could come away from the store with was a, you know, a Nelgen bottle, the kind of water bottle that if I and the water bottle fell up the side of the mountain, it would survive, but I wouldn't. So I needed one sure. of those. Right. And I got the 50 hikes of New Jersey book. And, um, cause I live in, I live in summit, New Jersey. And so I started checking off the list and I have to tell you those first 20 minute hikes were terrifying. They were absolutely scary. And I know that they're the kind of hikes that like a preschool class would do. Right. And I live in New Jersey. So like if I got lost, even though I imagined I'd be lost for like three days in the woods, if I got lost, I'd like end up in a target parking lot. I mean, really. Right. <laughs> really, and there are no mountains to climb really over there. There, there are some, but you know, yeah. Yeah, on a scale of the world, it, you know, I'd be fine. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, it just, it shows me this, this journey of, you know, the journey to the customer journey, the journey to wellness is really complicated and paved with a lot of road bumps, you know, where I had to actually physically push myself to be in the place of nature to move forward. And what I realized was that nature and the outdoors was the exact opposite of that life I had of binging. It was, you know, instead of pushing everything away, being in the woods was pulling everything in. And that meant, um, you know, taking in the fear of what's going on down the trail, what I might see, what I might encounter, would I be able to do it? It's feeling everything from the the mud kind of sucking my boots down into the ground, seeing and feeling the air and the canopy above me. And it was just so encompassing and real and beautiful that one step led me to another. I mean, it led me to Camel's Hump, which is a mountain that had left me winded in the past. And I, I went to the top of that. I went to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and thankfully back up again without the assistance of a mule. I, you know, and I started to move my body in a way that made me feel strong and powerful. And so I decided upon Kilimanjaro. And Kilimanjaro is the highest mountain that you can climb without the assistance of ice axes and ropes and supplemental oxygen. Right. It's a, it's, it's, it's a long hike more than it is, let's say, a, there's no vertical climbs from what I've heard. I've had a few friends do it. I kind of want to do it myself at some point. Nice. Yeah. I mean, hike, slog, however you want to describe it. Yeah. It is five and a half days up, one and a half days down, all without a shower. So not for everybody. <laughs> and, you know, what I love about what I loved about the idea of Kilimanjaro is that it's like climbing the side of the globe. You know, you start a few hundred miles from the equator and you end up in glaciers, uh, you know, and seeing a glacier. And it's it's really a remarkable, a remarkable mountain to climb. And so I climbed it the first time successfully. And, you know, I know this is going to be a bit of a spoiler alert for anybody who wants to read Gorge or ultimately see the movie um, because it's being made into a movie by This Is Us actress, Chrissy Matz. Um, you know, the first the first climb was, you know, after a significant weight loss and I was feeling very like, yay me kind of yeah. moment. Yeah. I went 
went back home and had a whole other adventure in mind, which was having a baby. I didn't realize how many of my behaviors just didn't magically go away under the stress of being a new parent and all the things that come with that. A lot of my behaviors came back between the sleep deprivation and the and the financial stress and all of these things, a lot of my behaviors came back. So I went back to the mountain about a year and a half later and wasn't magically transformed just by being there. So spoiler alert, that did not go well. And then I went back a third time and that third climb up the mountain was really about loving myself where I was and going from there. It was about remembering that it wasn't about the pounds lost on the mountain It was about the courage to step forward as I was, wholly as myself. Now, I want to be really real with you. That doesn't mean I didn't train. Mm -hmm. It just meant that weight loss wasn't the goal. It was about taking on a a half marathon, you know, a mountainous half marathon just to train. It was doing boot camps. I did all the things that I needed to move forward. Um, But the weight loss wasn't the actual that so, wasn't the goal. So how, um, you know, for our listeners, when, when you started all this, I mean, what, what was your, what was your peak weight? I mean, how, how heavy had you gotten and what was the catalyst? Cause I often think that the hardest thing is to get started. That is the hardest. I mean, you can always have an excuse for not getting going. Um, but, but the first taking that first step is really, really hard. And then maybe almost as hard as deciding to take the second step. Right. So, so, so how heavy had you gotten and what did it, what was your motivation? What got you started? Yeah, I mean, my heaviest weight was more than 360 pounds. I'd say that's about where I was in that glossy picture catalog moment, right? Um, And, you know, my weight has consistently hovered around the 300 pound mark, even in my third climb. So what got me started was first it was this idea that I just wanted to be a hiker girl and I needed to start in, you know, living that life, even though I didn't feel like I belonged in that culture. And, you know, if you do a Google search of like what a hiker girl looks like, I mean, let's face it. I was not a Patagonia model. (laughs) I didn't fit the mold of what an outdoorsy person looked like or was perceived then so I had to start changing it for myself and for others. And it's it's tricky, you know, when you want to make change and for yourself and then you you go to the you go on the trail and people are making comments or asking you if you're lost or <laughs> all of the things that have happened to me along the way, which is really, you know, really frustrating. I mean, even I, I took on a hundred miles of the long trail in the summer of 2020 and I did a backpacker piece about um, how is fat shamed like on, on the on the long trail, which is this trail that goes on the ridge line of um, the Vermont Mountains from the the Massachusetts border up to Canada, sure. and it's ridiculous because here I am out there doing the work, and somebody's got to make a comment about my weight and doubt that I have a place on the trail. So, you know, I think what's really, you know, why I started and how I took that second step was about getting active, feeling like I was living this life that I deserve. But now I do it um, not only for those reasons, but also because I feel like I need to be seen so others can feel like they're seen, that they belong on the trail and they have a place. 
No, that that's excellent. That's excellent. And you know, from from there, you you've started a business. Uh, you know, that that was the kind of the next step for you. So so, what was the path? I mean, when when did you decide to convert? Were you working at that time? What what were you doing previous to to all of this? Sure. Um, I was a journalist for a long time and I was telling other people's stories, other people's traumas. And as my own story was unfolding, I wanted to write it. And so I wrote Gorge, my journey of Kilimanjaro at 300 pounds. And, you know, kind of the natural journey of an author is to start doing speaking engagements. And so I spoke around the country. I've spoken at Google, at Pfizer, you know, at um, Dartmouth College and all around the all around the country and world about my journey, helping to inspire people to move mountains, um, helping people understand that this is not just a story about weight, but it's about overcoming obstacles. It's about envisioning yourself in the life that you feel like you deserve, and and heading in that direction. Excellent, and well, and and. You know, somebody might think, well, why, you know, well, why would a Google, why would some of these companies have you come and speak? But um, you're actually speaking more to the masses than I think people realize, right? You yeah. know, you know when, when, when you look at the statistics, you, you mentioned not being the Patagonia model, but, um, you know, somewhere, I think it was on your website, I saw that, that is it 67% of all women are, are size 12 or larger? Right, right. And so the, the interesting path, of my business is that I'm really speaking to the masses. Like you said, I'm speaking to the majority of the country and, and that's for the people who um, translate my story to be all about weight. Um, but really my story is also about overcoming obstacles and living in the now. Yeah. And that's where people, a lot of people get really hung up in that point. And so a natural evolution of that is that I started to become an advocate for, um, for eating recovery center and talking about binge eating disorder because I shared very authentically and open about my struggle with binge eating disorder and started to share that very publicly to help um, show people that there is uh, recovery and hope available to them mm-hmm. and that this is a real thing. Like it's not just an issue of just willpower and weight that has been kind of sold by the diet industry for so long, that things are more complicated than that. Um, and so in addition to being an advocate for binge eating disorder, I also started to find my way to companies that started offering extended sizes. So I became an influencer for L.L. Bean. Um, I showcased products for places like the North Face and Columbia Sportswear. Keen is another great um, partner of mine sharing these the opportunity to, to be out in the wild and to be who you are and no matter what your weight is and where you're starting from. I think that's been one of the most joyous transitions in my career to be an influencer. And now I'm really working to become an advisor. I'm not working to become, I am an advisor for brands that want to connect better with the the 67% of women who are size 12 and above. Yeah, that's excellent. And so um, we're, we're actually, we've just come up on our first break. So we're going we're gonna to take a couple of minutes, but when we come back, I want to explore that a little bit more. And I actually want to explore the, the obstacle piece of this just a little bit more also. So everybody stay tuned. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Cara.
It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Kara Richardson-Whitelake. Kara, before we went to the break, I mean, we, we started down the path. We started talking about a little bit about what you were doing, but, you know, I was curious about something. So, so... You said in the first segment, you, you talked about, um, it's about overcoming obstacles. It's, you know, your story happened to be weight related, but um, a lot of people deal with stress different ways. So, you know, you certainly have people that turn to alcohol. There are people that turn to food. Um, there are people who turn to, there are people that go out running when they're under stress. There's lots of different ways. And, and, and maybe some of these, you know, if you call them addictions or whatever are healthy, like, like the person who goes out running, but maybe many of them that aren't, um, you know, as somebody who's, who's struggled with obstacles yourself, what are some of the best ways to break through and, and, and tell me a little bit about your support structures for, for getting there. Cause nobody does this alone. I don't think. Oh, absolutely. I think one of the most powerful things for me in the beginning was to put it on the page and and share it. And so the first steps for me was sharing my struggle with my journal. Uh, you know, I was a journalist, so writing really comes natural to me. And so when I saw my own story um, with, you know, on paper, I was like, oh, that makes sense. And, um, you know, I, I, I remember waking up at five in the morning and putting, you know, getting my laptop out, my babies were sleeping, you know, and, and just writing it out. And when I went through that process of, of writing, I started to connect the dots. And that's what I love about the magic of being a writer is that sometimes you don't know what you're going to write before you start. Or you might have an idea, like you want to write a scene. Yeah. And suddenly the past starts to make sense. You know, the next level of that, and of course, something that I was doing in tandem was working with a mental health care professional. In my case, because I, um, you know, I live with binge eating disorder or recovered from binge eating disorder, however you want to frame it or say it. Um, I work with an eating disorder specialist. Um, you know, if that's something that you feel like you're struggling with eating recovery center has, you know, master's level clinicians, or if if an eating disorder, they can help guide you through that. If you go to eatingrecovery.com. But it was really important to enlist a support team, a mental health care professional to help pull some of those stories out. It's uncomfortable. It's difficult, um, but so worth it. 
to move forward because, you know, when I think back of, you know, my time, especially when I was a brand new mom and, you know, I did a lot of the things that most people are supposed to do, right? right. I had a job, I took the recycling out, I volunteered, I did, you know, I did a lot of those things, but I was consumed about my thoughts about my body and about food. And I would, I would, I would binge and then I would replace the food that I binge so that nobody knew I was really struggling. And it was just this 24 seven mental weight upon me. And um, it wasn't until I started to see a therapist, an eating disorder specialist, who who guided me through some coping mechanisms. And and sometimes, you know, what's interesting about therapy and any kind of mental health journey, no matter what you're struggling with, is the the, the tips that you come up with, the things that help the most aren't necessarily like you laying down on a couch and a therapist talking you through it. It's, it's like time management. For me, it was like time management and, and learning how to have difficult conversations. Cause that's something, again, I didn't learn in my, in my youth because I was constantly binging all the time. And so being vulnerable in the presence of someone you can trust and who can give you guidance is really, really important. You know, um, yeah, I, I come from a world where we've got a lot of coaches and, and um, we hear the term coach, coach quite a bit. Um, I do coaching, from, you know, on a business standpoint, but I've also encountered coaches that almost kind of straddle that, that therapeutic line. And I, I think that the coaches, you know, sorry for the coaches that are out there, but you got to know your place, right? I mean, there is a point at which, you know, professional um, therapy is required. Somebody who's actually really, really trained. Did you try working with any coaches first or did you just go right to, to, to therapy? And, and what do you think was, was maybe the difference in experience? Yeah, and I've, I've definitely coached um, one of my dear friends, Emmy, um, Emmy Aronson. She was the first plus size um, model. She does an incredible job coaching. But with that, it was more about business coaching because I myself have done a little coaching from time to time. And I found that, you know, a lot of people who came to me really might have needed a therapist instead. And so yeah. I I had to know my place and in that I am not, I do not have the expertise of a therapist, psychiatrist, any of those amazing human beings who are out there helping so many people right now, because, you know, the mental health needs right now with what we've been through as a world are just, uh, just mind boggling. And so um, I don't try to pretend to be that person. So that's, you know, one of the reasons why I know my strength is, is connection and um, emotional intelligence, disruptor strategy, all these things, you know, they learn through Harvard Business School sure. online and and through my own work, you know, with brands. I, I, I had worked as a journalist and I I worked as at a brand consultancy for three years and um, also through my influencer work, you start to get the, the tempo and the rhythm, but also my lived experience as somebody who is in the extended sizes and really having a pulse on that world. I know what I have to offer is to help brands. And I'm not just talking about apparel here. Mm-hmm. Brands really connect with that, that 67% of women who are size 12 and above who have really often been ignored and not part of the marketing picture and not part of the, the outreach that 
that brands have done in the past. And I really think there's a, there's really an opportunity for authentic growth there. Yeah. Yeah. And i um, sorry. So we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but I, you said something else earlier. I want to kind of backtrack to um, you talked about the power of journaling and journaling is something, I mean, I've, I've mentioned it to a lot of friends and, and I get a lot of rolled eyes. You know, I, I think it's, you know, if you're, if you're a writer, it's, it's, it, there's more natural to it. And um, I myself am not a writer, but from time to time will utilize journaling just to get my thoughts out of my head and onto paper. Um, what advice would you give somebody who, who, who would roll their eyes at journaling? I mean, and, and I'd love to know what was, um, give an example if you can, without going, you know, you know, into to something that's too private maybe, but, you know, what did that first journal entry look like? Uh, when, when, when you sat down <laughs> well, and wrote that story. Yeah. And I think that I, I do think that journaling gets a bad rap because I, I think that people have this vision that it's like this Barnes and Noble fuzzy or leather bound journal. And when actually I was feeling really stressed the other day about, you know, I have some surgeries coming up this year and I, you know, my brain is trying to just cycle again and again. How am I going to get all this done? How, you know, how, how is this all going to work? And I know, I know in my heart of hearts, it's all going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine, but I just needed to map it out. You know, I've got three kids. Um, I've got a business. I've got all these things. In, and once I put it on paper, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, we're good. We're good. We've got this all figured out. You've got a system in place. Everything's going to be perfect. But when everything lives in my head, then, you know, it gets, it clouds me from the things I need to do to move forward. And yeah. so those first, you know, those first journal entries, those first times when I was being authentic and truthful with myself, I, I remember thinking that, I, I do remember one of the first lines that I wrote, and, and actually nobody's ever asked me that question, so I love this question. I remember one of the things that I, I remember one of the things I remember was this uh, image of, of crumbs on my uh, shirt. And I thought of them as like lipstick on the collar, mm-hmm. you know, like if my husband had seen them, he would know what I was up to. Right. As if I was hiding secrecy and shame. And it was one of the, one of those phrases actually, of course, makes, made it into gorge and and maybe other books as well i can't remember but you know it was just such a a metaphor example of of how much secrecy and shame i felt that i was harboring um and of course like he wouldn't think of it that way like i was hiding a secret that i was i was struggling and he would have been there for to help me but at the time i just i felt so awful about it like I couldn't, you know, it, what was really hard for me in the beginning was that, you know, I think this is just food, right? Uh-huh. My husband needs three square meals a day and a snack <laughs> every day, every day. He doesn't struggle with it whatsoever. There's not this emotional red hot nature to food for him. And I just couldn't wrap my brain around the idea that I, I really, really struggle I really struggle with food and it is charged and it has a lot of it at the time it had a lot of negative energy of like what I was putting in my body and I was really conflicted about it. And so that journaling exercise really helped. 
you know, uh, just kind of a weird side question, but you know, I've I've had other friends who've dealt with with um, different forms of addiction. A friend of mine's an alcoholic or recovering alcoholic or whatever the term is, and and um, in in almost all of their cases, they had to remove certain triggers from their lives. Um, you know, as you think about foods, I mean, are there just foods that you love, but you realize maybe you can't eat because they trigger other behaviors, or are there other triggers outside of stress that you need to eliminate? It's a great question, and. Um in the beginning, that's what I thought was the way, you know, like, oh, I'm just going to have one of those biggest loser moments where they just empty out the cabinets and start fresh, right? Um, But here's the thing, we have to live with food. We have to live with food. And and I've got three kids, I've got a husband, and uh, one of the biggest things I've learned, and I know that Eating Recovery Center also helps people through this journey, is, is the idea that, you know, food is neutral. It's not good or bad. You know, it's a relationship with your body and, and, and dealing with stress and all those other things that can be learned. I mean, I, I can say this here because it's not necessarily an eating disorder conversation, but I remember having a thing about Nutella. I thought I could never, ever have Nutella in house because it was such a trigger food for me yeah. um, early on. And, and, and then, you know, as I kind of worked through my own recovery, I knew as a parent I needed more help and we hired au pairs, you know, you know, au pairs from um, France. That's yeah. where our first au pair came from. And, and every day she started her day with toast with Nutella and raspberries every single day. And I had to have Nutella in the house. And it actually was a conversation with my therapist about how do I manage this and how do I cope with this in the house? And, you know, because Nutella is Nutella, right? Sure. It's not good. It's not bad. It's not anything else. And just because it's in the house doesn't need, I need to eat it by the spoonful, which is, was my previous behavior. You know, I'm not going to lie. That's, that's where I was at with it. Um, but now it's just, it's just something in my cabinet. It's not such a big deal. It is just Nutella. And so those are the things that, you know, some people need to work through and, and that's okay. It, and it's, you know, as I talk about boy, this sounds like a strange thing to say, but for someone out there, it's not strange. For someone out there, this is a complicated relationship, whether it's Nutella or fill in the blank of whatever behavior or food or whatever. It's just, sometimes you just got to work through stuff. And, and you know, food isn't the kind of thing that you can just empty your cabinets and suddenly be like, well, I'm going to live without food in the house. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I have I had another friend who, um, who, you know, different kind of a, a story, and um, and in any event, you know, she always approaches. She said, "Don't tell me what I can't do. Tell me what I can do." Right? You know, mm-hmm. when when it came to foods, don't tell me what I can't eat, but tell me what I can eat. You know, what are the things that? And, and let me find enjoyment enjoyment there if I have to swap some things out. And and it, it's an interesting it's an interesting philosophy because another friend of mine says, you know, do you live in a, you know, do you live in kind of this, this, this world of scarcity or abundance? Right. And, and I, and that's what I think of when you talk about just emptying all the cabinets out, that's almost like a scarcity mindset, just remove it all. Well, that's not Mm -hmm. realistic, right? I, you know, at some point we come back and we want to, you know, it maybe even triggers the behavior more or something in, in, in some cases later on when we have access to those things. So instead, think about what you can have and move in that. I, and I have some food allergies myself, so I have to, you know, I, I had to eliminate things from my life that at one point I really used to love and um, can't eat anymore, right? Just because of the allergy. 
Yeah, and one of the hallmarks of binge eating disorder is that restriction is often a trigger for binge. So it's just, you know, there are so many assumptions about weight and um, people's bodies that are so hard to combat, right? It's so hard to kind of go against diet culture and what people believe and what people assume about your body. But, you know, if you do the work, if you start to take that path of recovery and self-healing and hope, hopefully some of the sting of that goes away and, you know, you're proving to the world that this is a much different kind of conversation. Right, right. Well, Cara, we're, we're already up on our next break. So um, again, everyone, uh, stay tuned. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes um, and we'll continue our journey with Cara. It's time to transform your business with the help of the execution culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture leadership and execution the execution culture available now on amazon is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like optimize your life your team and your organization through clarity purpose and action at nexecute we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision we design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results Connect better, grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with Cara Richardson-Whiteley. So, Cara, um, you also have this great story that, that you tell. You call it Bet on Me. And I wonder if you would go ahead and share that with our audience. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I mentioned that, you know, when I climbed Kilimanjaro that third time, I did it as I was, right? It was loving myself where I was and going from there. And I really did feel incredibly well-trained. And so um, as I started the hike that first day, that second day, even as I'm, uh, you know, acclimatizing to the, the air, which is half as thin as it is at sea level, I was feeling really, really awesome. So it's five and a half days up, one and a half days down. And the second day of hiking is 10, 10 hours of hiking. So, you know, most people would be pretty tired. I was pretty tired. I ate a good dinner and I went down, you know, to lay down in my tent and I start to fall asleep and I just start to hear laughter. I hear laughter in the next tent over and I hear talking and it's in Swahili. And I just had this sense that this is about me, right? I, I you just after carrying extra weight for so many years, you just kind of know. know. And yeah. then all, all of a sudden, I start to hear Mama Kubwa, and Mama Kubwa on, in Swahili um, means big woman. It was my it was my nickname. Everybody gets a, a climbing nickname, whether they know what it is or not. But mine was always Mama Kubwa, and so I started to hear them using that name and using the laughter, and I was mortified. 
So here I was feeling really well-trained, really ready for this mountain, even feeling better than the other hikers who were with me. And I started to have these thoughts of maybe I should just go down. Maybe I should just get down that mountain as soon as possible, put my headlamp on, return to where it came from. And then I realized, no, Cara, you're here. There's three other hikers with you. Like that would not be good for anybody if you just disappeared in the middle of the night. But it's just such an example of like how somebody's cutting words and behaviors can just absolutely eviscerate someone's confidence and mood and and feelings of ability. So that night I did ultimately fall asleep. I used a few mantras like, you know, you can do it, you can do it. But the next morning it was still with me. It, I noticed it as soon as I woke up. I didn't feel like I belonged there. I was fumbling through my duffel bag. And it wasn't just the altitude. When I got up and I started walking to breakfast, you know, I was tripping over things and and feeling absolutely uncomfortable in my body and in my mind. And one of the greatest lessons about Kilimanjaro is that if something's bothering you, you need to deal with it right away. So whether it's a blister, you know, a hot spot that's burning into your ankle, well, you need to put something on top of it. Um, You know, if you're thirsty, you need to drink because you're already dehydrated. If, you know, you're cold, you put on a jacket. And if something is bothering your mind, then you need to get it out. And when we were finally at at a breaking point, I took my head guide aside and I said, hey, you know, last night I heard you were talking about me. What were you saying? And he said, you know, the other porters and guides, they don't believe that you're going to make it to the top. And so I said, well, what did, what did you say? Did you make any bets? Because you should. Bet on me. Bet on me. And that hallmark moment, that moment that just kind of was me speaking up for what I needed in the moment was such a moment of change in how I saw myself but also speaking up for how I deserve to be treated uh, on this mountain, that my team should be rooting for me, not pulling me down. And and that's the way it should be. You know, you yeah. should be supporting one another as they're, as they're doing great things, as they're pushing their bodies, as they're performing. And so it was a pivotal moment for me to also ask for what I need. And as an extended size, you know, plus size adventurer out there, you know, sometimes I do need to ask about the size of a kayak or, um, you know, what's the weight limit for these kinds of things. But also, you know, I also can ask companies to to start increasing their extended sizes lines because, you know, less than 20% of apparel is made in Plus sizes, which is just mind-boggling. Can you can you imagine that? Well, yeah, like, when it's 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 unbelievable when when the statistic is so high on on the plus size part of it. And so so uh, I'm sorry. So I don't want to interrupt your story. Let's finish the story. But I do want to dive into the business part of it and how you're helping companies out with this. Yeah, and no, I mean the point the point of the story is just that you know you can. Um, you can have these uncomfortable situations, but you can also stand in your power. You can also speak up for what yeah. you need. And that, that was the big moment for me. And really it's one of the cornerstones of what I do now as an influencer, as an advisor is speaking up for what the market is asking for. It's speaking up for the needs. It's, it's sharing with corporations about how to, how to market to the extended sizes market in in a way that's just not that token and 
and just typical way of showing somebody in a larger body and in that is not working and and there's other ways to do it yeah you know so um have you found it how how easy has it been for you to go then and find the business i mean to, to you started this this um this advisory service services organization to do this for companies are companies at least you know obviously ll bean since you've worked with them but some of the others are they um are they really open to this are companies approaching you are they are they realizing it's there or is there still a sell that you you know you need to be doing this for these people right um well i think that there's there's two factors that are going on right now there's and, and I, I actually just wrote about this in a piece um, for outside business journalists just about to come out about the extended size market, that there's a moral case to this, right? There's a moral case of providing um, extended sizes uh, gear or access, right? So it goes beyond clothing. It could be an airline seat, mm-hmm. right? Or um, a kayak or, uh, you know, just any kind of seating at a restaurant. I mean, there's so many things and ways to welcome this market. That's the majority of, um, of Americans. Um, so there's the moral case of that, but there's also the business case, you know, why, why have you, why is your ideal customer avatar tiny? <laughs> why yeah. is it? Because that's not true. It's not true because being plus size is average. So, you know, if you were to just, you know, put a few more pounds on your uh, ideal client, you know, you might have a better connection with, um, with the market. I mean, companies like Aerie have had significant growth over the past several years because they have really pushed this idea of the extended size as being as important, if not more than straight sizes. Right. And they year over year, they've had growth because they're not, marketing based on this illusion of what could be they're marketing based on values they're mm-hmm. marketing based on inclusion and inclusion is the the next factor that i think that you know it's starting to open up that it's not just the color of skin it's not just about ability but it's about sizes of bodies also you know are you welcoming these people to your brand because there is opportunity there is money to be spent there is you know there and and most importantly people get to enjoy the same things and and have the kinds of adventures that we all deserve to have yeah that's that's outstanding and so um what uh what so how do you how do you go about then working with them are they are they bringing you in and and are you working with them with design is it more about helping them understand um what what's the work itself Right. Um, so it's it's about, you know, first of all, having an audit and, and seeing where they stand in the extended sizes realm. And then it's bringing in experts and, and my expertise on, um, you know, marketing, on, you know, disruptor strategy, on uh, public relations, about all these different ways that they can communicate better with that audience. And also just looking at metrics about whether this is working and how we can kind of um, slide and adjust based on that. Yeah, and have have you met have you met it at much resistance as you go into some of these companies? Do you do you bump into people who think that it's it's not a good journey, it's not a good image for them, or anything like that? I know because there are some brands out there that I think almost unfairly they push that other that other um, look and demographic to a point where they almost shame people who aren't that particular body type. 
Yeah, I mean, not outwardly, I haven't heard that. But, you know, I remember when I was first uh, looking for uh, sponsors for my Kilimanjaro climb, and there were some, some brands were very upfront about the ideal that I didn't quite, I, no, I definitely didn't match what their customer looked like. Yeah. And, and just what I have hope about is that so many, so many companies are seeing the value in speaking to people where they are and, and, and that's in body sizes, that's in, you know, uh, all sorts of kinds of diversity, but also, you know, what I also find encouraging and hopeful is, is the topic of mental health. Uh You know, people really meeting companies are really seeing people where they are and, and marketing to them in a way that speaks to the, the really challenging times that we're in. Yeah, and we are. And, you know, for anybody who might listen to this as a recording at some point in the future, we're obviously recording this kind of, you know, in the middle or hopefully toward the the the, the back end of the, the, the whole COVID pandemic. And um, that's obviously that's shifted things for a lot of people. How how has that shifted, um, you know, how you work and um, maybe how your clients are approaching things? Yeah, well, I have to say that right before COVID hit, um, I was really at the top of my game as a, as a, as a speaker. I came off of doing a, three events in Iowa at the top schools there. I had some corporate events lined up for the rest of the year. And I'm thinking, okay, well, this, this thing that's going on, it's just going to be a bump in the road. <laughs> and, um, oh, and I had just been to outdoor retailer um, and met some tremendous contacts there. That's actually where I bumped into Sean Gorman, who's the exec- executive chairman of L. Bean. I, I met the team from Keen, and so I made some incredible contacts there. And so I know that you speak so much about transformation. I mean, talk about a transformation where suddenly my bread and butter, you know, my you know, the whole foundation of my business model was speaking. That's, that's what I sold. That's what I did. That's what people sought me out to do was gone. And, you know, you can do a few zoom presentations, but you know, people were asking me to do them for free because I was just at home. (laughs) And so I had to think about how was I going to take what I had at that moment and move it forward. And I realized I had all these incredible contacts in the outdoor space and that maybe I could start working for L.O. Bean. Maybe I could start doing some content for places like Keene and Columbia and, and so many different spaces because at the same time as COVID hit, the outdoors and, and, and people seeking out adventures in the outdoors because it was the only thing that was open. Right. Skyrocketed. And so that allowed me to... Um, to follow that movement, uh, follow that movement of being in the outdoors. And, and um, I'm so grateful that that's the way that the world shifted. I mean, for so long, I've been trying to encourage people to be in the outdoors and suddenly that's what people wanted to do. And it was the only thing that they could do. Sure. So, so, you know, I used that time to start with the influencer work and then, and then move my way up to being an advisor. And I took the time to, you know, study disruptor strategy through the Harvard Business School online and, 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 you know, just 
study and take in everything that I needed to be a strong consultant, build my network of, of people who I rely on if I'm doing a massive project and I need data analysis or any kind of website building or things like that. And so in many times, um, in, in many ways, COVID has been such a game changer for me personally. It's been a horrible thing that's happening to this world and but it forced me to change my business for the better. Yeah. Uh, and I believe that my reach has transformed, not just speaking to audiences, but really changing an industry and the world and how people connect with and, and really um, serve the extended size market who have been so left behind in the past. Yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned the disruptive strategy. I mean, I come across a lot of people that believe that disruption is about creating a new product that nobody's done before or whatever, and it's not. Disruptive strategy is really about how you bring something to market differently that disrupts how others are doing it. And this is certainly an opportunity to disrupt, to change things. You know, you were talking, I was thinking, I, I forget the store we were in, but recently we were shopping and I, and I noticed that the mannequins were, were plus size. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool because they, they actually have realistic looking mannequins for the first time. Uh, I, I had never even seen that before. So I, I do think the world is, is coming back around. We are, um, unfortunately, though, we're at the end of our time. So um, we, we do need to bring the show to a wrap. I, I, I wish we could actually explore that a little deeper, but maybe we can have you back on and, and maybe as one of our panel discussions at some point where we're talking about a bunch of business topics. But uh, anyway, Caro, it's been so nice having you uh, with us today. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Well, thank you thank for you. sharing your story and being vulnerable and uh, putting it out there. I, I, I think many of us um, have our different ways of dealing with stress, and a lot of those can become obstacles. And taking that first step is important because we need to find a way to break through those. We need to find a way to, to, to move into a place of, of better happiness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, everyone. Well, we're, we're at the end of our time. Um, you know, look forward to having you join us for, for more great shows coming in the future. Again, Cara, thanks for being with us. And uh, check out her book. Um, actually, she's got a few books. Uh, would you get, just give us the titles again? Absolutely. Um, Gorge My Journey Up Kilimanjaro at 300 Pounds is, uh, you know, the one that's being made into the movie. And then, of course, I've got That Woman on the Mountain and Weight of Being. Um, probably the best way to follow my adventures is to find me on Instagram. It's just at Cara Richardson Whiteley or connect with me over on LinkedIn because I've got a lot of great content about how to connect with the extended sizes market over there. Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay, everyone, it's time for us to go. So until next time, I hope you have a great week. Take care. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.